catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm thrilled to have with me today a very special guest. We're going to have a really interesting discussion about a very important and timely and interesting topic. I have with me Dr. Sapna Kuchakar, who is an associate professor of anesthesia, pediatrics, and physical medicine and rehabilitation medicine here at Johns Hopkins. She's the director of the PICU Clinical Research Program and, most germane to our discussion today, director of what's called the PICU Up program, which is a fascinating and incredibly successful program, which we will talk more about. Sapna, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jed. It's awesome to be here. All right. So let's um, start just with a little background on you. So you uh, work in the PICU, obviously, and you also are an anesthesiologist, so you work in the pediatric ORs here. Just for folks out there who are maybe interested in that kind of career path, how does one get to do that job? Great question. It was a completely unanticipated uh, career pathway. So I started out after medical school, I thought I wanted to be a general pediatrician. I was going to take care of kids in the clinic and well babies and all was going to be good. But then I came in and I worked in the NICU, the neonatal ICU, and absolutely loved it. I loved that critical care environment. I thought I was going to be a neonatologist. Then I came to the PICU, the PEDS ICU. And the awesome thing about the PEDS ICU is you take care of kids. You do take care of newborns, for example, who go on ECMO, all the way up to age 18, sometimes even 22. And I just thought having that heterogeneity was just so unique and cool. Very cool. So then I was going to be a PEDS intensivist. But then at Hopkins, we have quite a few faculty who actually practice both PEDS anesthesia and PEDS critical care, which started with Mark Rogers back in the day. And uh, essentially, I saw these uh, faculty who work in the OR have kind of a different perspective and view of how they take care of critically ill patients, um, being able to manage airways like on the fly. Um, I just absolutely loved it. So then I decided to do this combined fellowship in pediatric anesthesia and critical care medicine. So essentially, that pathway was about eight years after medical school in order order to be boarded in both PEDS anesthesia, PEDS critical care, and do pediatrics and general anesthesia. Okay, so you did a pediatrics residency, an anesthesia residency, a pediatric anesthesia fellowship, and a PICU fellowship. Exactly. All right, and so there are uh, a variety of ways to do that. Some people will do, and we often have people who do an entire pediatric residency, then come to us for anesthesia residency. Correct. Uh, In theory, you could do it the other way around. Uh, And then there are some, and we have one, combined programs where you do your two residencies, pediatrics and anesthesia, together. Exactly. uh, And then you subsequently do whatever fellowships you're going to do. Right. All right. Right. So it's a long road, but one that gets you to a very interesting place. Exactly. It's very worthwhile. 
Great. All right. And then uh, the other thing is that you've uh, already, and you're relatively young in your career, put together a very impressive research career um, in clinical research. And so I wonder if you would mind just saying a little about how you kind of developed that, um, what got you interested, and, and kind of what's helped you be successful for folks out there who may be thinking about a similar path. Of course. That was another unanticipated pathway again. So it's important to kind of take cues and just kind of go with them when um, your passion takes you there. So essentially, when I decided to do this combined PICU, PEDS, anesthesia track, I figured out, okay, I have this very complex career. I'm going to be working in the OR and the PICU. That means I won't have to do research because I had done some lab research back in the day. Wasn't really a big fan. Uh, But then I had a couple mentors who posed some really interesting questions that I just couldn't get out of my head. So Myron Yaster, who you know and uh, has been a mentor to many in pediatric anesthesia, uh, said, Sabna, have you ever thought about sleep in the pediatric intensive care unit? I was like, well... I guess. I mean, it's not something that's come up. And then I started thinking about the fact that no one has ever talked about this. Sleep, pick you, developing brains. I was like, man, Myron, now I have to actually go after this. <laughs> and so um, with Myron's mentorship and a few other mentors, I did a systematic review in the area and discovered there was a huge knowledge gap. And potentially this was a niche that I could start to develop. So over time, I um, started doing some pilot research in that area, decided I needed some more formal training in clinical investigation to be truly independent. Uh, We have a fantastic KL2 program here, the Clinical Research Scholars Program, which gave me protected time to do a PhD in public health and clinical investigation. Uh, And so with that training and outstanding mentors across the board, I brought on adult sleep mentors. Uh, I was able to start to develop this niche. But as you know, your niches take you other places. So sleep led to sedation, led to early mobility and delirium. Great. All right. Really interesting. And I think the message there really is follow your interests and don't ever think that, you know, it's not possible. You had never done a lot of clinical research, but you got interested. You found some good mentors. Mentors are really key. And you were able to find this path and be very successful. So for folks out there interested but not knowing where to start, look around. Don't think it's not possible. Right. Great. All right. So I mentioned at the top of the show that you uh, are the director of the Pick You Up program, in fact, the founder and director. Um, So what is that? So uh, Pick You Up, we're very proud of this cool name that we came up with. So Pick You Up is essentially a standardized and streamlined program to promote a culture of mobility for critically ill children in the pediatric intensive care unit with a goal that no child is too sick to engage in early mobility. Great. I love it. And early mobility is something super germane, not only to kids, but to adults. Uh, So I want to hear more about the Pick You Up program for sure, and I know my listeners do, but let's back up and just maybe you could give us some history of early mobility itself and why we care about it. Sure. It's really amazing. If you look at the history of early mobility, it is absolutely not a new concept. So if you ask anyone out there, most people will say, oh yeah, we just always, patients were bed rest all the time, and now we're talking about getting patients up. But actually back in 1899, they were starting to talk about the benefits of early mobility after celiotomy cases and how if you limited bed rest to a few hours versus days to weeks, these patients were up and they were stronger. So then that trend started to take hold. And by the 1940s, there were all these editorials coming out about the evil sequelae of bed rest. In fact, that was when the first clinical trial actually happened, looking at early mobility in surgical patients. And they actually found that no patients in the early mobility group had major complications like pulmonary embolism or coronary thrombosis, um, and that it was safe, it was feasible. And actually during World War II is when they started using early mobility in soldiers to make sure that they could get back in the battlefield after they were injured quicker. So not a new concept. Our surgical colleagues probably brought it to the forefront first. But then what happened is technology advanced. 
keeping more and more patients alive with mechanical ventilation and more patients are staying ventilated for longer periods of time. So we eventually hit this trend of more sedation to keep patients comfortable, keep them safe, keep them from pulling their endotracheal tubes. And that's when the culture of immobility started to take hold. Um, Back in 2013, the Society of Critical Care Medicine published the PAD guidelines, the Pain, Agitation, and Delirium Guidelines suggesting that delirium was a big thing that we needed to be thinking about in adults. And obviously, we needed to optimize pain, agitation, minimize that. And so the Society for Critical Care Medicine then created an ICU Liberation Collaborative, which is this amazingly large quality improvement collaborative to promote the ABCDEF bundle. So A is for analgesia, B is for both spontaneous breathing trials, and awakening trials, C is coordination or choice of sedation, D is delirium, E is early mobility, um, and F is family engagement. So they brought all of those aspects together and said, you know, you can't silo these approaches. If we want to get patients out of bed, and we know that that's an important thing to do, you also need to minimize sedation. You can't be over-sedated if you want patients to get out of bed. You need to get families engaged. You need to optimize pain. So all of those things started to come together, and then the adults started doing incredible work um, on early mobility in their patients, and they started to show that the outcomes were better. In fact, now they're showing that hospital readmission rates are lower, and improved strength obviously decreases ICU-acquired weakness, um, and mortality rates after discharge are actually lower because these patients are probably getting back to a quality of life and muscle strength that is optimized. Great. So uh, lots of reasons to care about this, uh, for sure, at least in adults. So then uh, let's talk about how you made the transition or what you started learning about how this applies to kids. Kids in general, we think of as really resilient. They don't have a lot of the comorbidities of adults. So you might think that it would matter as much in them. Is that true? You might think. So um, a little history about where how Pick You Up came to be. So um, Dale Needham at Johns Hopkins has done a lot of the hallmark work on early rehabilitation. So we had outstanding examples right in our institution. So I think another lesson to your listeners is don't always look beyond the walls. There is some awesome work happening inside the walls of your institution and see what you can do to build upon that. Uh, So back in 2013, around the same time that the PAD guidelines came out, we took a look at our own PICU. And universally, all of our kids were over-sedated. They were all on a um, benzodiazepine and opioid infusion if they were mechanically ventilated. Another thing we noticed is a lot of the patients were being discharged to home, potentially, on methadone and Valium. Why? Because they were receiving such large doses of these medicines in the ICU that they were having physiologic withdrawal once you discharge them from the ICU. Um, On top of that, we weren't promoting sleep. In fact, we were giving medications like benzodiazepines and opioids and Benadryl, which are all deliriogenic and actually do not optimize sleep or are actually damaging to sleep uh, infrastructure. And that's really key. I just want to emphasize that because I think a lot of people think, even today, that the opiate, especially benzodiazepines, but but opiates as well. That this sedation is sleep promoting. It may be it may be that we don't want patients sleeping, but they think it is promoting good sleep, and it's actually not. That is not restful sleep. It's not the kind of sleep that helps your brain recover. Uh, and so I think that's really key that making a patient look asleep does not equal good sleep. Oh, that's such an outstanding point. So uh, whenever I teach our fellows and trainees, I always say sleep does not equal sedation. That's the bottom line. So we think that. 
the behavioral state of sleep is similar to sedation. Your eyes are closed, you're laying and not moving. However, what's going on in the brain? And is are they actually experiencing restorative sleep, that sleep that's so integral to normal brain development? Um, and now we know with opioids and benzos that that's not the case. Now, dexmedetomidine, we can hit that later. Um, that may be a different question. But polypharmacy is always detrimental to normal um, sleep architecture. So uh, we came together as a group and said, we have a problem and we need to figure out how to fix it. And clearly the adults realized a few years ago that they had a problem and they were working on that. So why not try to take some of the same tenets with the argument that perhaps it's even more important, I know I'm biased, but more important in kids because these kids' brains are developing at such a rapid rate. And as you know, there's all this hot topic work being done in anesthesia and neurocognitive outcomes of children after one anesthetic. But we leave some of these kids in the ICU on general anesthetic doses of these medications for days, weeks, sometimes even months. Yeah. But we're not talking about those long-term outcomes there. So uh, we brought together a multidisciplinary champion group who all agreed that this was an issue, and we really didn't know where to start. So we took some of the tenants from Dale Needham's work and other work out there internationally and said, what are our barriers, what are our facilitators to creating a culture of mobility? Then we had all these stakeholders go back to their own groups and ask them as well, because you want the entire unit to be engaged in the process, came up with a cool name, pick you up, and then... And just it, take a minute and tell us about that, because it is such a cool name, and it seems like such an obvious one, but well, it only seems obvious because we're hearing it, right? <laughs> right, How right. did Was it a long process? Was there a lot of brainstorming that went into it? Uh, it was a half an hour process. Uh, we sat together, and a bunch of us threw out some names that were not that exciting. And then Ivor Berkowitz, who's been here at this institution um, uh, longer than all of us, uh, he just said, well, what about pick you up? And then it stuck. So oh. thank you, Ivor, for coming well up with done. a cool name. Well done. And uh, Ivor's a great mentor and friend. So um, it was just perfect that he would he would be the one to come up with the name. So after we came up with the name and started to develop the program, um, it just took off from there. And the key was we didn't just, like, stay quiet about it for a year and then throw it at the unit and say, hey, guys, everyone's going to walk on day one of mechanical ventilation. We started piloting patients. So we found the ideal pilot patient who was willing to receive no benzodiazepine, just be on a morphine PCA, an adolescent, and then had her walk with an endotracheal tube. And we took pictures with the consent, of course, from the family and showed the entire unit what the possibility was and then said, this is what we want to work toward. Let's start to do that slowly but surely. And over time, once we implemented the Pick You Up program, which is basically a tiered structured program based on objective clinical criteria, um, level one, two, and three, and the goal was to get our therapist to the bedside by day three of admission, realizing we didn't have increased resources for every patient to be seen by therapists. But if we got the therapist to the bedside and didn't send them away because the patient was quote unquote too sick, then they were more likely to engage with the nurses, show them what could be done when the therapists weren't at the bedside 24 hours a day. And that's what really started to kickstart everything. And then our staff started to notice that if patients were over-sedated, they couldn't engage in mobility activities, so they'd maybe back off on some of the sedation. Less patients are delirious because they're not getting big doses of benzos. And over a year and a half, the process takes a while, the culture changed to one of a culture of mobility. That's so great. And I want to emphasize a couple of things that I heard from you that I think are really key. One is you got buy-in from everybody involved. This wasn't a top-down decision. Correct. It wasn't you know you and the unit director saying, everyone, we just made this decision, do it. Correct. You got everybody's, you got all the stakeholders together, you had them weigh in, you, you investigated what they thought the barriers were and helped address it. 
So this is an approach like the CUSP uh, approach here, the Comprehensive Unit-Based Safety Program, where getting the frontline stakeholders involved really helps not only with buy-in, but figure out the barriers on the ground, because who knows those barriers better than the people on the ground? Yes, indeed. So that's one really key thing, I think. And then the other is that, as you said, you really uh, started with, uh, you you found ways to be successful early by starting with key uh, example cases and then showed that success around so that people got even more buy-in. Right. And just getting people excited about what was possible was really the key to kind of moving the momentum forward. Because you're going to have naysayers. There are plenty of people who said, this is just dumb. This isn't going to work. Bad things are going to happen. Tubes are going to fall out. And in fact, our biggest naysayer, and she, she, she knows I always bring up this story, was one of our respiratory therapists, Krista, who just wasn't convinced. And by the time she saw one of her patients benefit from that experience, uh, she was fully on board. And now she's one of the ones doing all the amazing research that's coming out of our program now. That's great. And I've seen, you know, you, you guys also, uh, your team certainly has, I think, a talent for um, uh, public relations as well. Some of the videos you've made, uh, you gave a fantastic grand rounds in our department where you showed some Thank of those you. videos at the end. And those are just so compelling. Uh, and it's those kind of examples, I think, when people see them that makes them want to get on board. Yes, exactly. And social media has um, been, a, been a really great way to disseminate kind of the message and to show people internationally uh, what the possibilities are and say, hey, we're happy to help you read the, our initial paper, talk to us, call us, email us. We're happy to help you get implemented in your own unit. That's great. And so certainly if people out there are interested in getting this going, um, you can leave comments on the website, you can email me and I can get you in touch with SAPNA um, and we'll, SAPNA may want to leave some contact information available on the website sure, itself definitely. so that you can get directly in touch with her. This is really fantastic stuff. So let's go into a little more detail. Tell me, what are the three tiers um, that you mentioned and, and how do those work? Sure. So the three tiers, uh, basically three levels. Um, level one are our sickest patients. So again, the goal of Pick You Up is regardless of how sick you are to get a therapist to your bedside to determine an individualized plan. So we don't dictate exactly what needs to happen on what day other than a few things number one sleep hygiene so you can imagine no matter how sick you are sleep hygiene is important so the shades need to be up by 9 a.m every morning um how often do we have family members sleeping in the room and you know they you don't want to put the shades up because you don't want to wake everybody up but we orient our families and tell them the importance of minimizing delirium and optimizing mobility um, and our families are all on board. So uh, basically, sleep hygiene is across the board for all levels. Get the therapist to the bedside, head of bed, elevation, all of these things that we think are automatic but don't always consistently happen unless you have those reminders. Um, level two are patients who um, may still be mechanically ventilated, um, maybe on BiPAP um, with a reasonably high FiO2, but can still get out of bed to chair, potentially even ambulate if it's the right patient. Um, little things like, not little things, but big things like getting the wheelchairs to the bedside of patients who have a wheelchair at home, right? Because they're custom-built wheelchairs. We have a lot of kids with chronic critical illness who um, have complex needs. So we want to make sure we anticipate those early rather than much later. And then by level three, these are the patients who are kind of on the springboard to leaving the ICU, or maybe there's that one thing that's keeping them there. And those are the kids that we're trying to get walking around the unit and actually leaving the unit. So we have patients going out to bake cookies with PTOT because those are developmentally appropriate activities. Um, And speaking of developmentally appropriate, play is a major component. So Mm -hmm. you can imagine that's a big difference between adult and peds. Play is important for development. Play is important for these kids' moods. We want them to be engaged in their care and just getting them to do 
play with Barbies if that's what a normal nine-year-old girl would be doing sure. versus um, playing with certain rattles and our occupational therapists are fantastic. But the one thing I have to mention is that child life specialists are completely integral and crucial to all of our patients because they know how to engage these kids in developmentally appropriate ways, which has been great. That's great. And of course, none of this would be possible if they were over sedated. So really, it, it comes back to making sure they're awake enough to play and to walk right. and to engage. Great. All right. So you've got the three tiers. Now, are there any absolute contraindications? I mean, what about um, kids with open chests or open abdomens? Um, do they still, uh, are they candidates for getting up out of bed? So maybe not getting up out of bed, but that's a great question. So I think when you're implementing any new program, new culture, it's important to make it acceptable for the staff initially, right? Um, So initially when we implemented Pick You Up, when we make this recommendation to others, we did say that those patients would not be included in the Pick You Up program because, again, we want it to be safe and feasible Mm -hmm. and baby steps. Uh, But actually now that we're three years into the program, um, all of those patients are mobilized in some way. They may not be getting up out of bed, but they're engaging in range of motion activities. We actually now have a pick you up ECMO levels. So level one, two, and three based Mm. on the severity of your ECMO um, status. Uh, So those all can come later on. But initially we recommend that you kind of take a conservative approach and have those patients as contraindications initially. It doesn't mean that PTOT can't come and make recommendations initially, uh, but it's all individualized based on the patient and the comfort level of the staff, obviously. Great. And then I would imagine it would be the same, although I, I shouldn't Assume, I will say that in adults here with open abdomens, uh, often we sedate them a little heavier than we would someone without an open abdomen because of the concern for evisceration if they were to have too much, uh, be too awake. Is that similar in kids? It's similar, very okay. similar. So there, um, I, I don't want to give the notion that all our kids are awake and alert. Sure. So there's definitely patients because of the level of their critical illness. For example, a patient on an oscillator, a patient with an open abdomen who does high have high intra-abdominal pressure, those patients may even be receiving neuromuscular blockade. Right. But that becomes even more important to do the passive range of motion if possible, things that will minimize the amount of muscle weakness that will be incurred over time. So is it fair to say everybody, no matter how sick, should get some physical therapy, even if it's just passive range of motion in bed, uh, and everyone who can should get minimal sedation so that they can then participate as, as greatly as possible. That's the perfect summary. Everyone should be evaluated by an expert in rehab, which is our PTOT, physician, uh, PTOT staff, and then everybody should receive minimal sedation if possible, but minimal but effective. Great. And you want this to happen at latest day three? Yes, exactly. Great. Exactly. Earlier, even better, but right. by day. And the sedation piece needs to be addressed from the get-go. Because as we know, like if you start someone on a morphine drip at 0.2, they're going to need more the next day. But if you start them at 0.05 or even less than that, then you might have to escalate, but you won't end up on such large doses. And the, the goal is to treat the noxious stimuli of the endotracheal tube. And I think a lot of folks thought babies could not be awake and alert with a breathing tube. But one thing we had to kind of re-educate our staff is that normal babies without endotracheal tubes cry right? We don't necessarily give them sedation. Right. Same thing goes in the ICU. If a baby is crying, as long as we've addressed their pain control, if they're a surgical patient, et cetera, and we can still do non-pharmacologic things to help that baby to feel comfortable and happy and stop crying. That might mean a diaper change. That might mean helping them be warmer. So again, kind of taking a step back and thinking about what is normal baby activity and development? What do they do without a tube? Let's make sure we don't try to over-treat that just because there's an endotracheal tube in place. Absolutely. That sounds great. What about hemodynamic instability? Uh, will you, 
ambulate patients on pressors? And if so, is there an upper limit to the dose? Yeah, that is a, that's a great question, and it's on a case-by-case basis. We don't have um, any studies that have kind of said, okay, this is the upper limit or dose. I think most of our patients who are on, for example, a melanone infusion, we feel very comfortable ambulating those patients. Um, if you're on a low dose of dopamine or norepinephrine, it's probably reasonable as long as they don't have large swings. So we actually have, as part of the Pick You Up program, a stop and rest and reassess Uh, criteria so that everyone on the staff has a shared mental model about when you need to stop and say, bring the fellow over to the bedside. Let's talk about whether we need to go back to the room. Um, And that includes like a 20% increase from the baseline or decrease from the baseline of certain vital sign criteria. So we did want to have some objective criteria to say, okay, this isn't going well, let's stop. Uh, we just completed an 82-center, uh, multi-center point prevalence study of mobility activities and PICUs across the United States. And we found that the vast majority of time, um, there may be some hemodynamic changes. However, it's not clinically relevant or doesn't require that the activity actually gets stopped, which is very reassuring to see. Yeah, that's great. And uh, I would imagine that uh, well, let me ask you, do you ever, let's say you've got a kid, uh, he or she is on some norepinephrine for hypotension, and they are going to walk, would you sort of prophylactically go up a little bit on the dose, knowing they're about to stand up and potentially drop their pressure a little bit? I mean, do you do that kind of adjustment? Or uh, do you potentially, potentially, especially if they've been known to be a little bit labile in the past. Yeah. But if they haven't been, um, we generally will get them up and then start to think about, like, see what, what to go with the flow and see what happens next. Great. All right. So... Uh, any others that we have? We talked about hemodynamic instability. So ECMO patients can walk. I, I would assume they get their own assessment. But. So, yeah, there's, so there's actually centers across the country where they, they focus very well and ambulate ECMO patients. Now, the VV ECMO patient is probably the most straightforward to ambulate, and that um, tends to happen more frequently. But there are centers that have ambulated VA patients as well. Obviously, it depends on where they're cannulated. Uh, we actually had a patient um, who was interviewed at our last IC rehab conference. She spent uh, 600 162 days in the PICU, and uh, she walked and rode a tricycle um, with a central chest cannulation. Now, that cannulation was much more stable, you know, so you have to kind of take into account where the cannulation site is. Uh, we try to keep our ECMO patients as awake as possible. Um, one of our um, previous ECMO patients was on VA ECMO um, through the neck. She didn't actually ambulate due to some weakness, but she was awake, texting, doing her homework on her iPad. Um, so all of those things are important important for quality of life in the ICU and also moving past that. Great. So certainly uh, on pressors, can ambulate, ECMO can ambulate, um, and obviously uh, just the fact of having an endotracheal tube in place is not a contraindication. How about um, dialysis? Patients on continuous renal replacement therapy, can they ambulate? Also an awesome question. Uh, again, yes. Again, it's all on case-by-case basis, right? And so can you can you um, take them off of the dialysis for a brief period of time for that ambulation? I would say for the vast majority of patients on CRRT, that is a possibility, right? So can you take them off for 15 or 20 minutes? Of course, then there's that period of rinse back and putting them back on. How long does that process take? So again, the important thing is every morning for every kid every day, that's what we say, every kid every day, the team needs to talk about what are the pros and cons of this mobility activity. So yes, today we think that the risk benefit of having the child walk is um, worth the risk of coming off CVVHD for a period of time. Um, So I think all of those things become very important. It's absolutely not a contraindication unless there's a medical reason why they can't walk for that period of time. Great. All right. Now, you mentioned before 
uh, or we talked about opiates and benzos being not great sedatives, certainly promoting bad sleep, if anything. What about Presidex? You brought that up, and, and I think it's a great question. Do you use Presidex in, in kids who need a little bit of sedation, uh, maybe to tolerate the tube or for some anxiety? And what effect does that have on their sleep? Yes. So dexmedetomidine has um, really become a major focus of sedation in pediatric ICUs across the United States. Unfortunately, in um, developing countries and um, low-resource areas, it hasn't quite taken off. The advantages of um, Presidex is essentially, number one, it, it is the only sedative we have that most closely mimics natural sleep mm-hmm. when you look at the EEG. And when I say that, that's when you're only receiving Presidex. So our current practice now is for almost all of our mechanically ventilated patients, unless they have severe bradycardia or some other contraindication to be started on Presidex as their primary sedative. Um, because again, they can their respiratory uh, their respiratory status is maintained. They're actually spontaneously breathing, and then we add a little bit of opioid to maintain um, or help with the analgesia for the noxious stimuli of the tracheal tube. And usually, for most patients, that's enough. And yep. titrating those two medications creates a state where they can still participate in their care, they can mobilize, they're awake, they're alert during the day, they can sleep at night. Um, for a few patients, we might have to add a little background Valium, but enteral Valium, we try to avoid um, IV midazolam infusions as much as possible. Yep. So um, for the vast majority of patients, that combination works beautifully. Great. And what dosing are you using of the Presidex? So we generally start at um, 0.5. Um, and as you know, the adult recommended maximum dose is 0.7. We used to have kids when Presidex was added as a third agent when we had institutional restrictions. It's fascinating to see. We had kids who would end up on 2.5 or 3 wow. of Presidex. But over time, once we started using it as the initial drug, we saw our opioid and benzo use drop significantly. And we had much fewer patients having physiologic withdrawal from Presidex discontinuation, which is a real issue. So that's one of the downsides to Presidex is that it is a continuous infusion. Therefore, um, weaning can take a while, which may mean staying in the intensive care unit longer. So I would urge folks to try to minimize the dose as much as possible so that that weaning phase um, is as short as possible. Pioclonidine can be a nice adjunct. Uh, they're both in the um, alpha-2 class, and there are some advantages to pioclonidine in terms of the affinity for the alpha-2 receptors. So uh, there's some there's some uh, different strategies that can be used to optimize that. Great. All right. And so that's 0.5 mics per kilo per hour, yes, which is that exactly. strange thing about uh, the way dexmedetomidine is right. done. <laughs> All right. So 0.5 mics per kilo per hour is how you start, and then you'll titrate up to kind of uh, the necessary amount. Exactly. And some kids may require a bolus initially, a one mic per kilo uh, bolus. But again, that's on a case-by-case basis, depending on what their status is when they come to the ICU. Great. How about uh, we use a fair amount in adults of Seroquel. Um, I don't know if you're using that in kids or what the effect uh, on their sleep is of that. Do we do we have a good feel for that? So we don't have any great data about Seroquel and Risperidone, um, the antipsychotics on sleep. However, we are using those drugs much more um, for treatment of delirium. So now that delirium is such a big hot topic um, in adults and now in children, we, we know that the prevalence of delirium in uh, children admitted to the pediatric ICU is just as high, if not higher, than many adults um, being mechanically ventilated and also not mechanically ventilated. And we know why, right? The ICU environment is one that is deliriogenic in itself. It's chaotic. The lights are on often 24 hours a day. Uh, so we have an algorithm here at Hopkins for management of delirium. We use validated screening tools for delirium prevention and screening. Um, and then if a patient is 
having a positive delirium screen, we call our child psychiatry colleagues who have become very engaged in the entire process. If it's emergent, we actually have used haloperidol in some of these patients if they're unsafe to themselves. But if we can wait, um, we will turn to our child psych colleagues for guidance on which drug to start because there are so many meds these kids are on. Yeah. You can imagine the number of interactions that occur. Uh, so we might do quetiapine or Seroquel or Risperidone. Those are the two medications we primarily use. I would say at Hopkins, are, we've been using more Risperidone. Um, and we do see a benefit to their sleep-wake patterns in addition. So yeah. uh, the other reason we engage child psych and why we think that's so important is as the intensivist, I'm not following these kids when they leave my ICU. But if they continue on those drugs, someone needs to continue to manage those. And I'm not the expert in those medications. They are. So it's important to engage those colleagues. Absolutely. And one theme that has just kept coming up in our discussion, and I think it's really key to emphasize, is the multidisciplinary nature of the care. And that's true of any patient in an ICU. Really should be true of any patient in a hospital. But really, you can hear that echo throughout everything you've been saying. And so I think people need to really keep that in mind when designing a similar program. What about um, the, uh, is there any data in kids? There is some emerging data in adults about Presidex as a to prevent delirium? Do we know if that works in kids? We don't, not yet. So that study has uh, needs to be done. So I'd be happy to collaborate with someone to work on that project. But um, I think that anecdotally, there is some data to suggest that it might help. Uh, but again, with all things with pediatrics, the population is so heterogeneous, and that's one of the big challenges of clinical trials in our patients. You might decide to focus on only cardiac surgery patients, but a two-month-old is very different than a 16-year-old, so navigating that can be challenging. Great. All right, so we've talked about a bunch of advantages of early mobilization. Anything else that we haven't hit on, anything that's specific to maybe pediatrics that's different from adults or anything that we haven't touched on that you think this is really a reason to do this? Well, we talked about the play component, which is really important. And uh, I think this is equally as important for adults, but I think in kids, we often assume that the kids who are normal and healthy before they came to the PICU with their ARDS or whatever um, disease um, they had to encounter, that they're going to leave the PICU and they're going to be just fine. So, for example, that straight-A student who was a star soccer player, they got a bad pneumonia, they came in, and then we just kind of take care of their resuscitation needs, take care of their pneumonia, and send them on their way. What we're learning now is those are the kids who have the most to lose in terms of their functional outcomes, and those kids don't get back to the quality of life that they had prior. Um, so we do actually a great job. We did a recent study to look at what our practices were prior to pick you up. We were consulting PTOT on day zero for all of our medically complex kids who had pre-morbid issues. But our kids who did not have issues prior to becoming to the PICU, um, they were the ones that had challenges after. And so the importance of pick you up for those patients can't be emphasized enough in getting early mobility on board. The other thing we're starting to learn by interviewing families and children after they leave the ICU is how their morale and mood was improved during the ICU stay. Um, we've had teenagers tell us that often they felt we had a cystic fibrosis patient um, who was mechanically ventilated for a long period of time say, I felt like I just wanted to give up because I was told if I was intubated that it was game over mm. and I would never get extubated. But then 
I heard that maybe getting up and walking would be something that would help me. I did it with my breathing tube. It was scary the first time I did it, but over time it got easier and I had a goal to work toward. And there's nothing better than hearing that you're able to engage your patients in a goal when they're the most critically ill. And um, hearing those stories after the fact has played a great role. Also sleep after leaving the intensive care unit. If you do survive the ICU, which the vast majority of our patients do with technological advances, survivorship becomes more important. And again, how do we make sure these patients aren't leaving the hospital, having nightmares in the middle of the night because of their ICU experiences? So all of this work that we're doing up front plays a role for years down the line. That's fantastic. Do you have any feel or has anyone looked at how common is it nationwide or even worldwide for PICU patients to be mobilized early? Is it happening 10% 10% of the time, 75% of the time. Do we have any idea? So so right now I would say it's um, it's less time than we would like to see. So the Park PICU study that I just mentioned, our 82 center a multi-site study, um, that data has yet to come out. But it, essentially what we've shown is out of the ABCDF bundle components, early mobility is the component that is implemented the least. And um, the most programs across the world do not have early mobility programs. So PICU Up was one of the first to describe that experience. And now we're Luckily, starting to see more and more programs cropping up. There have been um, several centers in the United States that have actually taken Pick You Up and implemented directly into their units and are ongoing now, which is great to see. But then programs are starting their own based on some of the same tenets. Uh, so it's starting, but we have a long way to go. Good. It's, a, it's good that it's starting and, and certainly a, a really worthy goal. Are there things you would recommend? Um, we've talked about some of them in terms of discussing with stakeholders, getting people involved, starting small baby steps. Other things you would recommend for folks out there who might be might be PICU attendings who are sitting here thinking, oh, I want to do this in my PICU? Right. So I, I think having that physician champion is key. But again, as you've brought up over and over again, having those multidisciplinary champions. Now, you might be tempted to get a bunch of different multidisciplinary champions from each discipline. Discipline, but I can't emphasize how enough how important it is to have one person who owns the leadership mm-hmm. for that group um, because having that ownership and accountability plays a major role in someone's you know impetus to kind of move forward and push because it's hard work. It's hard work to change culture and like turn it on its head. Yeah. Um, so starting slow, I can't emphasize that enough again, picking one patient to work together to figure out what the right plan is and working toward that goal of getting more and more patients mobilized coming back and discussing and not being afraid to say, well, my group said that they're worried about X and tackling that head on. Um, You can't let your ego come into it. You have to be willing to listen to everybody's perspectives. Um, Another uh, thing that I found has really benefited our program is the one thing I've learned most from all of this is I never quite appreciated just how much each discipline brings to the table. I knew clearly they all had this expertise, but then I started talking to them about what they do when they're not talking to me or working with my patients. And it's just extraordinary what these different disciplines do. So take the time to learn about what they do and then give them opportunities to go out and educate their own disciplines. So for example, um, the child life specialist gave a plenary at the uh, Association for Child Life Professionals. Nice. Right? On Pick You Up and their specific role in that. Our respiratory therapists are doing the same thing at the AARC meeting. Our PTOTs are... So send them out into the world to talk about it because then they just get more excited and they end up mentoring people within their own discipline to kind of spread spread the word and the importance of this. Absolutely. Those are all great tips. What about families who are in a PICU or have a loved one in a PICU 
uh, and are, who's not being mobilized. Is there what would you recommend for those families? Is there a way they can bring this up or interact with their providers in a way that might encourage them to at least get some things going on? Yeah. So um, I love that question of families. Like with anything else, you're your best advocate for your child, right? And so in the PICU, we could not provide the best care for your child unless our families are engaged. And so it's really important to advocate and just ask how you can help and say, I really, I I know that exercise is a good thing and I want my child to exercise. I want to help. What can I do to help? And I think just advocating for that's really important. The other really simple things to do that often the PICU staff doesn't think to ask is, what is your child's schedule at home? So if if Bobby takes a nap every day at 2 p.m. at home, there's no reason that we can't try to replicate that in the ICU. It may be hard once in a while, but we can still try to do that. When are their meal times? Um, is there something from a comfort item, a love, a lovey, something mm-hmm. that you can bring from home that we can make sure they have with them at all times? Our goal is to make your child as comfortable as possible and make the ICU as stress-free as possible. Also, what can we do to help you? So we talk about sleep for the kids and how important it is. It's equally, if not more important for you to sleep and be well-rested as a family member because you can't engage in those complex decisions and advocate your child for the, the best you can without adequate sleep. So is there anything we can do to help that happen as well? Uh, those are all really important steps to advocating for mobility in all realms. Yeah, that's great. And I would say I love that I, as I'm sitting here listening to you, I'm thinking, the adult and pediatric kind of equivalents for uh, helping you be awake and engaged during the day and helping you be asleep at night. So we think for adults, we want to make sure they have their hearing aids and their glasses. Exactly. Uh, kids might have hearing aids and glasses too, but maybe it's the lovey uh-huh. or the um, right. you know or the toy uh, that they right. like to play with that's going to help them be awake and engaged during the day. And then at night, uh, do you ever do white noise? Is that something that you guys use at night? Yes. And actually, we have an ongoing study looking at white noise and the impact on delirium and sleep-wake patterns. But if, uh, for example, my daughter uses white noise As at night to sleep at yeah. home. And so if she came into the ICU, God forbid, there, I would want the white noise to be at her bedside. That's what she's used to. So there's no reason to say, oh, she's not sleeping well in the ICU unless we bring the things to her that she would be using at home. 100%. I actually will tell you that my, my oldest daughter was so reliant on white noise as a, as a young toddler that one day we had a power outage in the middle of the night and she woke up screaming because the white noise had gone off. And, uh, that has you know, happened to me too as well. Right. Yes. And you could imagine that if a kid was screaming in the middle of the night in the ICU, you might say, oh, they're delirious. Right. And or they need more sedation. They need more sedation. Right. When actually they just don't have their white noise. Exactly. So take a step back and think like, okay, if this were happening at home, what would we do? Right. So those are important steps. I love it. Sapna, anything else we should talk about before we sign off? No, this has been absolutely fantastic. And I think just realizing that you're your best advocate for your patients. And if you think that it's possible to create a culture of mobility or really any other quality improvement initiative, um, draw on your resources. You're not alone. Multidisciplinary staff are there to help you. Um, even if it seems like there's a lot of inertia that needs to be overcome, it is possible. Just take the small steps and make it happen. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming today and for everything you're doing for our patients here. Thank you so much, Jed. All right. That was fantastic. I think really just a ton of really good stuff in there. Hopefully there's some folks out there interested in taking this to their own PICUs. And by the way, it doesn't have to be just a PICU. This is really effective and important stuff to use in adult ICUs as well. 
check out the website at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com, where you can leave comments that everyone can learn from. Let us know. What are you doing for early mobility in your PICU or your adult ICU? What can we learn from you? You can, of course, also get a hold of me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. I am going to leave Dr. Kuchakar's uh, Twitter handle on the website, along with the Pick You Up Twitter handle, so you can get a hold of her uh, that way, either by uh, tweeting at her or direct messaging her, and you can also learn more if you're interested. We'll also put some articles that she recommends up with the show notes. If you haven't already, please go to iTunes, where you can leave a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. And of course, if you are willing to be a patron of the show and support the making of the show, go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show, even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge. It really makes a big difference, and we greatly appreciate it. A big thank you, as always, to those who are already patrons, as well as to Brian Park, who makes incredibly useful outlines for a lot of the episodes. You'll see them pop up in the show notes, and they are really useful, especially if you are studying for any exams or courses. Thank you, Brian, for your hard work. All right, that is it for today. Thanks for listening. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Sapna Kuchakar, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.